You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, interviews from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s with voices from the past. It is rather extraordinary to me to think that people regard me as, quote, an expert. I do not consider myself an expert about this music, but still, it's fascinating to me that, that I've come to this place in my life. Uh, it certainly is uh, much better than I ever could have dreamed it. Singer Michael Feinstein. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. In the mid-20th century, brothers George and Ira Gershwin wrote many of the songs that have lived in America's heart for decades. With George's melodies and Ira's lyrics, songs like Someone to Watch Over Me, Embraceable You, and Let's Call the Whole Thing Off have lived for years. In 1977, a young cabaret singer named Michael Feinstein went to work as Ira Gershwin's personal archivist. For the next six years, until Gershwin's death, Michael Feinstein worked closely with him, gathering insight, inspiration, and some great stories about the Gershwins and their contemporaries, Cole Porter, Irving Berlin, and Irving Caesar, among others. In 1995, Feinstein wrote a memoir called Nice Work If You Can Get It, and that's when I met him. So here now from 1995, Michael Feinstein. I wanted to preserve a lot of stories that I heard, and uh, I regret that I didn't remember more of them because I heard so many of them on a daily basis. And Shana Alexander, who just wrote a book about her father and mother, told me at that time to keep a diary, keep a diary. And I only did inter intermittently. And I wish I'd kept uh, more copious notes because then I'd have ten of these instead of one. <laughs> <laughs> you seem to have done a pretty good job. I mean, this, this, the Oscar Levant stories. I mean, how many Oscar Levant stories do you, do you hear these days? There are tons of Oscar Levant stories, and the thing that's amazing is that there are so many of them that are not documented because he said so many things off the cuff. And I'm always hearing stories from different people in Hollywood and New York. And, uh, for example, Liza Minnelli is the one who told me that uh, Levant said, death is nature's way of telling you to slow down. <laughs> and uh, there, there, there are so many more of them. Do you, uh, you, at one point you, you talked about the, the principle of synchronicity and things happening for no apparent reason initially, but, but you, re you begin to analyze why things and the things that must have happened for a reason. Do you believe in, in that, that there is a, a synchronicity about your life? Clearly there is a synchronicity about my life. It is uh, undeniable from my perspective. There have been so many things that have happened that led me to originally June Levant, who introduced me to Ira Gershwin, who led me to Liza Minnelli. And uh, I constantly find examples of synchronicity happening in my life where I will be thinking of a particular song and um, hear it on the radio a few minutes later. Or uh, the other day I was talking to the composer David Raxon, who wrote Laura, and he told me that Cy Coleman was a rehearsal pianist for his only Broadway show, for David's only Broadway show called If the Shoe Fits. Two hours later I was in a record store, and uh, in the closeout bin of used records I found a Cy Coleman album, and on the back, on the liner notes, there it was saying, Cy Coleman was a rehearsal pianist for If the Shoe Fits for David Raxon <laughs> in 1946. Those things happen to me constantly, at least once or twice a week. So. Or when somebody like Rosemary Clooney says, gee, I, there, there's these songs that I've always wanted that I did that I've never been able to find, and the next day you find them. Uh, this, is, this must seem kind of weird, kind of eerie to you at times. It doesn't seem eerie to me. It's always fun, and I always say a little thank you to the powers that be to... Uh, let them know that I'm grateful that I still am able to manifest what I put into my mind. Now, you knew from a very early age that music was going to be a major part of your life, didn't you? 
Yes, I always loved music. I didn't know what role it was going to take in that it seemed uh, impractical to think that I could make a living uh, playing the piano and singing. Yet that impractical thing has happened. <laughs> well, nice work if you can get it. <laughs> exactly, yes. Uh, it's uh, Everything that has happened uh, career-wise has been sort of just by one thing leading to another. And it is rather extraordinary to me to think that I have uh, written a book and people regard me as, as, quote, an expert. I do not consider myself an expert about this music, but still, it's fascinating to me that, that I've come to this place in my life. Uh, it certainly is uh, much better than I ever could have dreamed it to be. Let me ask you to, to try to put something into perspective. You and I are about the same age. You grew up and you went in, in one direction with your, with your music. I grew up, I, you know, my parents listened to the same kind of music, but I went off in the Beatles, Beach Boys, Rolling Stones direction, mm. you know, in that way. And, and not professionally, but I mean, as, as a listener, what, uh, what was magic for you about this particular kind of music? I started listening to this music at an age when I was not able to intellectually uh, understand what it was that attracted me. The music simply attracted me. S- certainly this is a question that has been asked of me a great deal, and it's just something that that captured me, just as some people like z- avocado and some people like zucchini and whatever. I mean, it's just, it is, it is just uh, the way the music affected me very deeply. The pop music on the radio did not have the same appeal for me. And... I knew what I liked and I knew what I didn't like and I just continued to listen to what I liked and then as I grew older I was able to identify the things that I liked into different bodies of work as being Gershwin and Irving Berlin and certain certain singers and then as I grew older I was able to understand what it was that I liked. And it is those elements, I, in my experience anyway, that brings many of us back to this after we've toyed with the pop, we come back to the timeless classics. I mean, reading some of the lyrics in here, some of Ira's lyrics, They're al- stunning. almost brought tears to my eyes. He was a stunning lyricist. He worked so hard on those words. Some lyricists could write very easily like Lorenz Hart, but Ira worked for weeks and weeks to, to get those perfect rhymes and uh, to write a song like uh, Love is Sweeping the Country, Waves are Hugging the Shore. Brilliant. It's poetry. The, the, one of the lines that you that you talked about in here that that uh, again just I had to stop and I almost put the book down and just absorb it for a minute. Oh, uh, when you mentioned that that someone to watch over me when he mentions that 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 he may not be a man that girls, may not be the man some girls think, think of as handsome. That was about him. He wrote it about himself. Yes. Although I may not be the man some girls think of as handsome. Ira was a very shy, self-effacing man who really never considered himself attractive to ladies and uh, wrote that song around the time that he got married. And so I think he was uh, very much in the mode of uh, counting his blessings and rather amazed that he had won a woman like Leonor. And it's just so poignant to think that he would think of himself in those terms and not be able to maybe say it as much as he could write it and, and, and put it in a song. He was very adamant that his song lyrics did not reflect his personal life, but I am equally adamant that they do. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, as listeners to music, we always wonder, no matter who the composer is, well, how much of their own life is in that particular song, or how much what do those lyrics really really reflect? And it's uh, nice that you pull back the curtain just a little bit so we could see that yes, maybe it does sometimes. I think that in many instances, Ira was not aware of how much of himself he was expressing in the lyrics, and it came through because it was just part of his life experience. You like potato when I like potato. You like tomato when I like tomato. Potato, potato, tomato, tomato. Let's call the whole thing off. One's attitudes and ideals are always expressed in their work, whether one is aware of it or not. Does having known him and worked with him so closely for six years and a month, does that make your performance of his work the richer? Yes, of course it does. It it uh, it always informs what I do. I think of Ira every day. My life is consumed with thoughts about people who are all dead, and that doesn't bother me because um, they've given me a heritage that I am carrying on. And uh, as I have grown older, I have come to see that there is little difference between spirit that is alive and spirit that is no longer in the physical body. I think that it is all spirit and the energy that... Uh, Ira put into his songs and George Gershwin put into his music uh, is as powerful as ever, if not more powerful, giving uh, joy and uh, healing to, to the world at a time when we really need it. After this short break, Michael Feinstein separates fact from tall tale. Now back to my 1995 conversation with Michael Feinstein. The message is so timeless. Yes, in in all of their music, it, it's just it 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 speaks to the heart as much today as it did when they first wrote it. Yes, even if it didn't, it did only take twenty minutes to knock them out. <laughs> well, Irving Caesar was the one who always said that uh, he wrote you know songs in two minutes. I mean, you could say, Irving, write a song about a wastebasket. I throw my trash in there. It gets. I mean, he just he would immediately you know. And Irving is now one hundred years old. He turned a hundred on the fourth of July, and he. Uh, when he first talked about how he wrote Swanee with George Gershwin in 1918, he said, we wrote the, the refrain in 30 minutes. Then by the 50s, he was saying he wrrote it in 15 minutes. And the last time I saw him on television, he said, wrote the song in two minutes. <laughs> so the time has uh, accelerated for uh, old Irving. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, that's part of your function in a book like this, too, isn't it? To pass along these, these fish stories as the fish gets bigger and bigger each year. Oh, yes. Well, there's great Irving Caesar stories. He, he uh, wrote, produced, directed. Uh, he didn't choreograph, but he was involved with a show called My Dear Public that closed out of yeah. town in 1943. And oh, no, maybe he came into New York, but it was a huge flop. And his name was all over the place. And when the reviews came out, they said, Caesar should have done this. Irving should have done that. And then he, Irving was very upset, and he called up Ira Gershwin and said, why is everybody blaming me? <laughs> <laughs> well, but see, I, I, I love the stories in here as much of the, the, little, the little or the big failures as much as the, the successes, the, the songs that they tried to follow up with after the big hit. And, and, and something else that you point out that was that's so accurate, but it's, I mean, in hindsight, you don't realize that they didn't realize at the the time that these songs that we now consider classics were going to be classics. No, they were written for shows or for movies or for uh, specific purposes, and uh, they were products of commerce. You know, they, uh, Ira never knew that uh, his songs were going to be supporting him in his old age, and um, it was ex extraordinary to him. Something that he knocked out, literally may have knocked out in 20 minutes, would live on and on and on. 
Yes. He, uh, Richard Rogers became a real businessman. I guess he was always uh, very business conscious, but um, there's an interview I heard with him done in the late 50s in which he said, I am not a businessman. I am a, I am a creator. And yet, when you listen to this interview with Richard Rogers, he sounds like a businessman. He was a very, very cold man. And yet... Uh, there are all of those songs that show a side of him that never would have been evident in meeting him. Now, I, I, I couldn't imagine how intimidating it must have been to sit down at the piano, the piano where George composed many of these songs, and play for Ira. I mean, play their music. The, this must have been... I, I, can't, I can't imagine what that must have been like. It was, uh, it was scary. It would probably be scarier for me now because I was... As excited as I was about knowing Ira then, I would I would certainly be more more nervous now doing it because I, I had a bit of naivete that youthful cockiness. Me. Yes, I wouldn't say I was cocky, but uh, it's just like um, I saw a, a, a television show of Liza Minnelli with her mother Judy Garland uh, live at the London Palladium in 1964. Liza was 18 years old, and she said that she watches that program now and she cannot figure out where she got her nerve. She said it's amazing that she was able to do what she did at that age. Then she later had to relearn how to do it. <laughs> oh, gee. But, but I mean, I, I, I share the, your, your wonder and, and awe when Ira says that's the piano where he composed Porgy and Bess. And I think, <laughs> it is. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty, it was pretty uh, uh, intimidating. <laughs> I mean, to, to think your fingertips were caressing the same keys. Yes, it, it was... Uh, very exciting. I've had the opportunity to play many pianos played by famous creators through the years, but still that first moment that I played George's piano is uh, one of my great memories. Wow. Does, I, I'm trying to think. I, I keep coming back to how this must inform the way you are able to perform. Now, it's just, I mean, there are lots of musicians who can interpret these songs very, very well and very profitably in many cases. Does it, does it, is there a substantial, is there a, sub, a substantive difference in the way that you interpret the songs having worked with <laughs> the man responsible for many of them? I think that all of my life experiences have affected the way I interpret the songs mm -hmm. as I have um, more defined or crystallized what I gleaned from the time with Ira Gershwin. It has crystallized in my interpretations too. My goal has always been uh, as best I can to sing with a great connection from the heart that the songs come from a place of truth and clarity and that they express what the authors wanted to say in the songs in one way or another He loves and she loves and they love so why can't you love and I love too Even if I don't interpret them exactly as they wrote them. There are certain elements that I must adhere to because they are the essence of what the songs are about. And that is the thing that is most important to me, is to keep their vision alive in the interpretations of the songs. That's why I carp about a lot of Frank Sinatra's interpretations when people get really angry at me saying, how can you criticize Frank Sinatra? Well, I don't mean to criticize him, certainly. I just hear the way he sings some songs, and it irritates me because I hear this macho persona and this hip swing and finger snap and coat slung over the shoulder interpretation that is superimposed on the 
essence of the songs. And that is hard for me sometimes, and it's one of my great lessons to learn to to uh, not judge other people's interpretations. And I've gotten better at it, but it still is very hard. But it would be almost like the, the cake baker's apprentice seeing this wonderful wedding cake that you've learned how to make from the master, and somebody else decides to put tutti-frutti uh, icing on it. Uh, it's, it's still the same cake, but the, the whole different interpretation, not what he had in mind. It's uh, it, it, Well, I, I agree with you, except I can guarantee you that there are more people that would rather hear Sinatra sing many of these songs than me, so there we are. You but, know. But, but, <laughs> well, not, let, let's put it this way. Not to take anything away from anybody else's interpretations of them, but uh, clearly, I would think that somebody who has the the uh, the advantage of having known what the original intent was, if I may use that constitutional phrase, mm. has got to mean something. It's got to mean a lot. I feel like I have something to contribute in this in this area, and and, and I'm not saying that with false modesty. I really am excited about being able to do it. Um, I think being a performer, that one of the uh, great lessons is never to let your ego get out of control because it's so easy to let that happen. And, and the more that I'm in, quote, the entertainment business, the more I realize how ridiculous it is. <laughs> <laughs> and how flighty. Yes, and how nothing lasts forever and, and how some of the greatest stars of one time are all but forgotten now. Michael Feinstein is 65 now. He's the artistic director for the Center for the Performing Arts in Carmel, Indiana. And you can find easy Amazon links to Michael Feinstein's book and his music of Ira Gershwin at our website, heardeverything.com. And while you're at heardeverything.com, be sure to listen to my interviews with two other great musicians. My 1998 talk with Tony Bennett. Ralph Sharon, my music director for many years, he said, Tony, you're going to San Francisco. He says, I think this might be a good song for you. And uh, I had no idea that, uh, it, I thought it was going to be maybe a local song, but it, it ended up being an international hit. And my 1988 conversation with the great Mel Torme. When they found out that I wasn't an ex-junkie or a current junkie or a future junkie or that I was a hard-drinking, two-fisted, you know. They decided not to do a piece on me. And, of course, we post new episodes here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find Now I've Heard Everything on all major podcast platforms. And thanks for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, my interview with the author of a book from the 1980s that has now suddenly in 2022 become one of the most controversial and banned books, my 1991 conversation with the author of the graphic novel Mouse, Art Spiegelman. I didn't realize it was going to be so shocking when I was working on it. It wasn't like I had a high concept. On the other hand, I realized that if I was outside of this and somebody was telling me, I just heard about this comic book, it's about the Holocaust, and it uses animals to tell the story, I'd go, oh, geez, we've reached some new lows here, you know. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Bill Thompson.